Eve Wonkin is a distinguished emeritus professor at the University of Liège, an honorary professor at the Conservatoire National des Arts et Métiers. He proposed an anthropology of communication based on an ethnographic approach. He was the deputy director of the École Normale Supérieure de Léon, director of the French Institute of Education, and the director of the Musée des Arts et Métiers. He is author of several books, most recently, Reinventer les Musées. Yves Wankan, welcome to the creative process. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, so it's very interesting, we were talking about still learning or perpetual learning, uh, and you have very many fascinating um, projects, so do you just speak about some of them? And yeah, well, see, once you are retired, mm -hmm especially when you used to be, in a sense, protected by a title. Mm -hmm. And the very day your title drops, mm -hmm. who are you? Uh, what, who am I? Mm -hmm. And whenever I'm asked, well, now, how do you want to be called? Say, well, I'm not really a consultant. I'm not just making money. I'm not just a retired person. I still feel very much like a scholar. Mm -hmm. Well, I might just still argue that uh, I'm still affiliated with my former institution, but I don't feel quite comfortable with neither of those definitions of myself. There used to be an expression in English, but that's actually a German uh, expression, privat gelehrter, that is, a person who keeps learning by his own. Uh, so I feel, again, very much like a scholar with a lot of freedom to go wherever I feel like, and to write uh, in a very free, free way. That is, I'm not in the sort of economy that um, scholars who are still competing on the academic market have constantly to think about. That is, is it worth investing my time to write a paper for that journal or not? Should, should I write a book or should I just write a paper? And when you are struggling within the university system, you always have to keep that in mind. Now that I'm retired, I just feel like doing whatever I feel. I can, in a sense, burn my time mm -hmm. on a silly project if I feel like it. Mm -hmm. I can devote as much time as I want to whatever I feel like. And I would say that one year after my retirement, I got just retired a year ago, I feel a bit overwhelmed or snowed under project, but I also feel very much excited by the very many intellectual commitments I'm involved into. I was for the last four years before my retirement, director of a museum, the Musée des Arts et Métiers in Paris. It's very difficult to translate. Uh, if you say arts and craft, it just means nothing. No. So you better keep it in French. And I was offered that uh, possibility because I had been invited to join the Conservatoire National des Arts et Métiers. And that museum is a branch or a department of that conservatoire, which is uh, an establishment of higher learning. Uh, it, it's a long story, but it's... Uh, adult education, meaning. Mm -hmm. 
and it has a museum uh, for pedagogical purposes, or it was created that way in the late 18th century. I became a professor there, and my I was not supposed to I was not invited to teach, although I could do it, but my main job was to take care of that museum. Uh, it's it is the third oldest museum in France after Le Louvre and the Museum of Natural History. It's entirely dedicated to the history of technologies, uh, the history of science, the history of major discoveries, mainly in the technological industrial domains. Uh, in the 19th century, for example, it was called an industrial museum. So. Um, it has to do with creativity, but creativity in science mm -hmm. and technology. All right. I was trained, as you probably know, as an urban anthropologist, and we might come back to that later. So I thought that I had uh, a unique opportunity to combine my experience as a teacher and social scientist with a museum which was in need, so I thought, uh, of a deep revamping or a deep new breath. Um, I wanted to uh, rejuvenate that museum with new projects and I very much wanted to make projects in art and sciences. It's almost a genre in itself, that is, you invite artists in residence you invite them to uh, discover your museums, to discover your uh, depot, a town where we actually had uh, 80,000 objects, as opposed to the current exhibition, which is uh, 3,000. So mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's always a proportion, most museums, yes. but our uh, museum is especially rich mm -hmm. with objects you'd never see. So the idea was to invite artists and invite them to uh, suggest temporary exhibitions which would combine their vision mm -hmm. with the history of the object that were on display. And I can show you catalogs or whatever uh, later. So I spent four years there uh, trying to, in a sense, recreate the museum. And out of that experience, uh, I wrote uh, that uh, short book, which is titled in French, Réinventer les musées, question mark, Reinventing Museum. Question Can you mark. do it? It's a big question. Well, yeah, and I'm not certainly the first to think about reinventing museums. Now, the title was, of course, suggested by the publisher. I wanted something different. I wanted, as a title, something dealing with rituals. And here mm -hmm. comes the anthropologist that I was trained to be. It happens that a Belgian curator named Chris Dercon, who is now president of the Grand Palais, which is one of the very major uh, exhibition hall in, in Paris, said around 2015, we, he said, as directors of museums, we should think about inventing new rituals in order for our publics, for our visitors, to share collective experiences. Mm -hmm. He very much wanted, because he used to be uh, the director of the Tate Modern 
in London to have public enjoying themselves not only discovering the collections but also sharing a particular experience for example discovering the museum at night or offering object to the museum which the museum then would put on display sure enough he uh, invited dancers and musicians many artists in the museum but then I said wait a minute it should be possible to invent many more uh, rituals so I decided to create 12 rituals but I was not going to bind myself with money problems or security problems I was not even going to say look I would like that ritual to take place in that very specific museum what I very much wanted to do was to tell 12 imaginary events mm -hmm. that I sort of created out of the blue uh, with a stress on the collective experience that was the idea I also made sure that object paintings whatever is usually displayed in museum was not pushed on the side that is it's too easy to say we are going to create new events fancy rituals in a museum but we are not going to involve the, the, the object of that museum if you do that then you only use the museum in its capacity to host an event mm -hmm. but it is more difficult to try to get the object involved mm -hmm. why and you know only too well that you cannot touch the object they are very precious mm -hmm. and the curators won't let you handle uh, the object the public in most museums can only look uh, but never touch or almost never touch the object on display so that was my challenge my idea and I might tell you a, a few of those rituals is if you're interested oh yes I am. but my idea was to trigger the imagination of museum curators uh, museum mediators as we call them that is people who are in charge of the public in whatever capacity either to guide them around or to have activities with them especially with, with kids or specific yes. groups uh, and say look when you think about it it is quite possible to do things differently with museums when I was director I tried to do it but that was difficult I have to say that I left pretty frustrated because I had not been able to go as far as I wanted to go because there is some kind of an inner resistance mm -hmm. resistance of habits resistance of for security reasons mm -hmm. or money reasons but you might say imagination is not in power in museums yeah. and my book is in a sense a call for more imaginative or more daring museums give you an example and I wouldn't say that uh, all of my rituals 
I'm bright new. I sometimes imported ideas from other fields and imported them into the museum. Um, I imagine there is a talk about uh, within a group of mediators in the museum say well look we should have something outside of the museum there is a lot of talk today how can museums make a bridge between the museum and the city mm -hmm. uh, how not to convey an image of a wrapped up closed up institution how can we open up how can we invite the city to come in or how can we project out ourselves outside of the city. I took the example of theaters, especially in Belgium, but they are everywhere, where they created the new function of urban managers, that is people who are especially in charge of, in a sense, suing mm -hmm. that relationship between the city and the theater. And I said, it must be possible to build bridges in some uh, similar way between the city and the museums. So my idea was to suggest some kind of a pilgrimage or some kind of a procession where objects, mm -hmm. or because objects are difficult to handle outside of the museums, mm -hmm. uh, there would be maquettes, there would be photographs, there would be all kind of symbols or signs or references to mm -hmm. the object which are inside the museum mm -hmm. and they would be carried around the city in mm -hmm. some kind of a carnival. Yeah. The idea is not new. I suggested that a museum could create a procession like Francis Alice, the Belgian artist, who is actually a resident in Mexico but is mm -hmm. from Belgian origin, uh, offered in 2002 in New York uh, object had to be carried from one section of the museum of the MoMA in, mm -hmm. in New York and they needed to be uh, carried to one of the depots outside of town uh, and it turned it into a very major artistic event. Mm -hmm. uh, there was even uh, Kitty Smith, Kiki Smith uh, uh, being on a, on a chair yeah. uh, on the shoulders and she was it was a parade mm -hmm. with musicians, uh, with a lot of hoopla. That was one of my rituals. That is, mm -hmm. it is a ritual because very often ritualized behavior is like a procession. It is very slow. Uh, and my main idea is that a ritual gives you a glimpse of a different universe all of a sudden. It is still the same reality. We are still in Europe or we are still in New York. But all of a sudden, those people, those musicians in the street, appear to you as if they were coming out of a, a different planet or a different period uh, in the history of the city. So I did try to analyze or to give addition, a definition of the ritual, except that it gives you a different frame a different angle through which you can observe the reality for a while and then realize that reality after all might be different. It's up to you to change frames and make reality appear to you 
from a totally different vantage point. And it's very interesting how um, spaces can affect, or whatever frame, but spaces can affect our experience of an object, uh, of an artwork. Um, and that living with art, or the, I guess it can be, um, you're sort of, that not exactly with that ritual, but you're also, you know, if you live in, in your home with art, or mm. you've made it, it belongs to you in this other way. And it's interesting that there's some, we've had purchased, mm -hmm. like the Frick Museum, so that's like, it's presented as, you know, not with so many labels. It's not a yeah. intellectual, you think about experiencing it. Oh yeah, or um, even you, you change the lighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, very often in my description of rituals, mm -hmm. I try to stress the idea that museum could be open, and some already are, very, very early in the morning. Mm -hmm. when the birds are still singing, when the sun is barely uh, rising up, mm -hmm. nothing has changed. At the same time, everything has changed. Mm -hmm. um, it is, in a way, a performative approach to, to space. That is, um, there is an American anthropologist, Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimblet, mm -hmm. who has been one of the key figures in the, um, the the performative approach to tourism or to art or to uh, pilgrimage, different fields. And she has been much stressing the idea that if you consider a museum at night, it's just an empty space with cases, boxes, uh, window frames, panels. And in the morning, when uh, security comes in and then when visitors comes in it is as if they were making the museum alive they are actually performing the museum yeah. so it is as if the reality of, of the museum was very plastic you just need to change a, a few variables mm -hmm. um, like the way you display the cases the hour of the opening the number of people you, you, you put you put in that space and the reality in a sense changes. Mm -hmm. So my rituals had to do with the idea that well you might try you might try to change the frames just like you used to change the lenses of a camera mm -hmm. and a different reality would then appear in spite of the fact that it is still the same box or the same building, uh, in that respect, uh, I didn't touch anything. But I suggested a ritual called um, the La Conference des Animaux, Animal Conference, where I inject animals in the museum. It has been done before. Again, Francis Alice uh, sent a fox at night in a British museum and the camera yeah. follows the animal. Mm -hmm. uh, the animal appears like a visitor who looks at the paintings mm -hmm. and trying to find his way out. The very idea of having, even in your imagination, animals in a museum is so weird that it sort of changes the very reality of what a museum is all about. And my idea is to say, look, if we want to start exploring new functions for the museum, if we want to start thinking about different museums, 
we may as well uh, offer ourselves, I would say, experimental situation, mm-hmm. even if very imaginary. I mean, you might know about uh, experimenters in the real called mm-hmm. um, uh, magic mix. I mean, they do. They come to museums and for mm-hmm. a weekend, uh, they try to change the museum with mm-hmm. different walls. Um, different ways of hanging the paintings, whatever. But on Monday morning, it's over. When I'm, what I'm trying to do is uh, changing nothing in mm-hmm. real, but having your mind ready for major changes, like animals in a museum. Now, wait a minute, what is that? Or mm-hmm. let's all go in the woods. Uh, let's try to have... Uh, curators uh, offering objects in a very very different uh, framework once again it might never happen but that's not important what is important is to think about what is going to be a museum in the near future in a society or in societies which are in need of very rapid change which cannot just keep museum the, the way they used to be as holders of objects forever. Uh, in very many countries in the world, museums end up being the most stable institution, like the church used to be. Yeah. So there are a lot of requests or demands or expectations about museums. Mm-hmm. And museums cannot just say, That's not our business. Museums in some countries are very ready to to change their missions and be much more societally oriented Mm -hmm. than they used to be. To give you an example, I was very much struck by the capacity of the Museum of Anthropology in Vancouver, the Museum of the University of British Columbia, to be in a permanent dialogue with what is now called in Canada the Aborigines, the, the local populations. Yeah, they've been set up. Right? That means that the local uh, population can ask the museum to wrap up objects which are still charged, which are still sacred, that cannot be displayed just for the pleasure of the visitors. They have to be wrapped in a blanket. All right, and that is at the request of certain indigenous yeah. populations. That's it. Uh-huh. Or you might remember those uh, raven we see very often mm-hmm. in sculptures of the Kwakiutl. They're not called Kwakiutl anymore, but mm-hmm. that used to be the name, uh, and still the name better known. It has been asked mm-hmm. to close the beak, or at least to wrap up the mm-hmm. beak of the ravens. Because yes. they are still considered as living creatures, uh, and they cannot just be left with their beak open. In like a tormentor, yes. Yeah. So I like those examples because mm-hmm. it tells that the curators uh, at the museums are very attentive, very receptive to the vision of a population which was there well ahead of anybody else. And I do respect their request. Mm -hmm. It might even happen that some objects are returned to uh, the local communities Mm -hmm. 
and the local communities may actually not take care of those objects the way the Western view would consider good care. Because they think it belongs to them. I mean, it, it, belo it does belong to them. Yeah. So <laughs> they might decide, it, it might be a caricature, and I have to be careful about what I'm saying here, that the object has to return to Mother Earth and then mm -hmm. bury it, which is just inconceivable for a, a Western-trained curator. Yeah. But if the local community considers that the object has to root and return to Mother Earth, let's do it. It's part of a cycle. Uh, but you see then how very different vision of what an, a sacred object is uh, or an object of art. In a Western museum, the, the object has to be kept and maintained at a given temperature within a, a sealed window. Mm -hmm. yeah. For a local community, the very same object mm -hmm. has to be kept alive and you might say possibly nourished. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it has to be buried. It has to be near the ancestors. Right. Yeah. It's a bit of a caricature, that, mm -hmm. uh, the example I'm offering you. No, but, but it's, it's it, important. Uh, I'm so you might have, and I, I'm very personally very curious about what is going to happen with um, the restitution process, which is now engaged in France. Mm -hmm. The President Macron said, we have very many objects which were borrowed, stolen, uh, from African communities, mm -hmm. we have to return quite a few of those objects. We have to make a list and return them to different African countries. So far, they made a list of 26 uh, at the Cape Verde, but anyway. Now, some African countries uh, say we just don't know how we are going to host those objects coming back. And that was because an argument because they don't have the space. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But they might decide to display them in different ways. Mm -hmm. Why should we build Western museums in Africa in order to do with those very objects, uh, to do the same as we do in, in, in France? We, we, uh, African countries, I would say, should do the way they do in Canada. Uh, those objects are theirs. If they disappear, Mm -hmm. or, or go into a long cycle, why not? They've been documented, you know. If Yeah, yeah. but of course when you speak that way to curators here in France, it's not conceivable that those objects might just disappear. Mm -hmm. I won't go too long into that discussion because, you know, it would drag us for, for hours. No, but it's a very but important question and I think that it would... I think that you must certain pieces should be considered each piece you know a unique piece mm -hmm. but um it's interesting yeah and my point was there is now a big debate within the international council of museums which is some kind of a huge network of museums about 30,000 museums around the world are members mm -hmm. of ecom uh it's a UNESCO-supported uh, network. And in Tokyo, last September, there was a very heavy debate between those who wanted to maintain a definition of the museum which was focused on the conservation of objects, their display, and the pleasure 
taken from looking at them. It's a short, beautifully crafted definition, mm -hmm. which has lasted for about 50 years mm -hmm. now. But opposite to that definition, there was a new definition offered by Scandinavian countries, by African countries, by mm -hmm. Latin American countries, which, which said, look, amusement cannot just be defined by European countries anymore. We must debate within a world wide open uh, network like ECOM. We should consider the museum as a very inclusive institution, open to very many publics, not just the people who have the cultural uh, or educational capital to be able to admire a painting or whatever but people have to be invited to be much more actively involved in the activities of the museum. It should be a forum for many segments of the populations or the communities, etc., etc. That is a much more socially or politically oriented definition of the museum. There was such a refraft during that Tokyo meeting last September that ultimately that decided not to vote for or against uh, the new definition. And that decided, well, we are going to refurbish it, we are going to clean it, because it was a bit disheveled, so to speak, uh, and we will come back later with a new definition. But it's a very, it, it doesn't sound like much. I mean, do you have anything to do but defining a museum? But it's very important. If you have a universally accepted institution, mm -hmm. it's quite an important point. There are not that many institutions which can be accepted universally or globally for, uh, by about mm -hmm. 186 countries or whatever. And you now see a sharp divide within the world of museums between a, West, a, a traditional Western definition and a, I would say New World uh, definition. Personally, my book was about a con was about a contribution to that new definition right. through reinventing mm -hmm. uh, new frames for museums, new, new ways of approaching them. The only criticism I would have addressed to that new definition is that it was a bit too much. Yeah. Um, you have that uh, funny definition of, of a, uh, a camel, it's a horse which has been drawn by a committee. <laughs> and that's a bit what happened with yeah. that definition. It, it, it's just too fuzzy. Yes. But in terms of their main goals, I think they are right. Museums have to change. They cannot be kept within the boundaries defined 50 years ago. Mm. Um, so that's one uh, activity I, I have been pushing during my early retirement mm -hmm. is to hopefully contribute to the debate about what is a museum. No, it's very fascinating and I would hope that it wouldn't there wouldn't have to just be a, a, you know polarizing definitions either new world or old world but definitely there are a lot of people even people who you might think are predisposed to enjoy art it's very strange, you know, once I heard someone say to me, and I think he's well educated, he appreciates music, but he just said he doesn't 
I, I thought everyone had a response to art. I thought everyone, mm-hmm. like maybe you wouldn't like certain art, but he just said he doesn't enjoy art. And that couldn't be partially to do with feeling shut out of the museum, but he mm-hmm. had a high uh, level of educational attainment. So there wasn't a reason mm-hmm. that I could understand. And yet maybe it's something, this exclusivity, this um, pristine environment that doesn't welcome everyone. So if there's a way of being more inclusive, and I feel that so many people feel that they have an artist or creative person inside them. So the artists are not intimidated at all by museums because I look, I, I may know history, yes, sure, but I looking about how it's made, it could be almost the way a mechanic is looking at a car. So mm. I know to me it's a fact, it's not a factory, but it is a place of making. And if we can encourage that to see, ah, I, I, I look at something, I'm not really, I'm admiring it, but I'm thinking, oh, that's how that's made. And how can I, what can I learn from it? And what, not to copy it, but I'm always asking myself and I always tell our students to ask themselves mm. and they come from all sorts of disciplines. It's not good enough. I read this book, I saw this film, I went to this museum. How do you absorb that into your own creative process? And then what do you do? And mm. that's really how you mm-hmm. learn when you yeah. do something with it. See. Some, Even a conversation, yeah. Oh, yeah, but mm-hmm. look, I, I, as you were addressing that issue, I was thinking about one thing I saw at the Ashmolean Museum mm-hmm. uh, Oxford, and one thing which is very similar that we did in one of our exhibitions yeah. uh, at the Musée des Arts et Métiers, mm-hmm. and that is you offer the possibility to people to draw. Yes. There's a bench, mm-hmm. there's paper, there are pencils, and now that's up to you. Now, wait a minute. I haven't touched a pencil since I was a kid. Now you do. Or your kid is going to say, well, let's do it together. Yeah. I was pretty fascinated by that experience during that exhibition we, we had. We had an exhibition on les machines à dessiner, the drawing oh, machines. Yeah. That is, uh, it was called drawing machines. That means drawing machines are machines that can help you to draw, mm-hmm. perspective machine, yeah. or it may also say machine that has to be drawn both ways. Mm-hmm. And it happens that the curator, the invited curator, was an artist uh, well known in Europe and a little bit in the United States, Francois Coyten, mm-hmm. and his uh, partner, uh, partner not in life but professionally, I mean uh, Benoit Peters. And the two of them imagine a room which was full of objects, and around the object there were small primary school benches where people were invited to sit and draw. Mm. And it it was somehow in the dark. So you only had a flood of light Mm. above each bench, and people would sit there and would sort of curl up, Mm. and they would start to to, to draw, and they were silent, they were perfectly absorbed, engaged uh, in the act of drawing again. And it's, I think that uh, Skyton and Peters did a very good uh, setting job, that is, they put people at ease in the sense that they sort of invited them in a niche so that there wouldn't be visitors uh, overlooking what those people drawing were doing, 
there was some kind of an intimate setting built up so that people would feel comfortable drawing in spite of the fact that they were certainly not professional uh, artists. So what I'm trying to say is that you might build up within a museum totally different context or conditions or situation which would then invite people to develop a totally different relationship to the object. Mm. The Ashmolean also offered benches and pencils, but they were well open in that space. And I have to say that I didn't see one single visitor using the opportunity that was offered to them. Mm. Possibly because, as opposed to Skyten and Peters, the Ashmolean didn't think about offering a niche where you can sort of curl up mm -hmm. and draw all by yourself without being observed. But that's just an hypothesis, you know, and I would have to discuss with the curators of the Ashmolean in order to find out whether their experiments, their invitation to drawing, uh, was successful or not. But the very intention of the Ashmolean has to be rewarded. I, I think it's it's very smart on their part to to do so. Uh, to do so. Look also. It it happens now. You put people on the floor. That is, you put mattresses or very, you know, uh, inviting cushions, mm -hmm. and you invite people to lie on the floor, and watch work on the ceiling. It might be video, sometimes it might be art. Yeah. But given the fact that so many youngsters, especially adolescents, mm -hmm. do spend quite some time in mm -hmm. their life on their bed or sofa or couch and watch things yeah. while they are lying, why not think about those ways of observing in museums? I, I remember an exhibition in, in, in Paris at the Musée de la Musique, musical museum, where people were invited to crawl into a tent and then sit down and then lie, lie down and watch movies projected on the roof of the tent. Mm -hmm. It's not that difficult to do, but it was very um, dramatic and also uh, very pragmatic. That is, uh, people were after a while, first they have to relax, but after a while, mm. they would not leave the tent. Mm. You know, that felt too good there. So th that's what I mean by reinventing the museum. Um, it's interesting because, um, well, they're relaxed. Uh, they're almost in a state of dreaming. They, um, and I think it's interesting when you think about some of the more popular mediums being um, film and television is also in that you're talking about the nocturne of museums but yeah it is it's it becomes closer to you than now oh well it's about comfort you're walking yeah. around a museum yeah. yes and there are guards and there are, yeah. you know lights um, that's one of the very uh, how would I say very basic definition. Please let me sit down somewhere. And there are still so few museums which let you sit down. Sure enough, you can have you know, folding seats for uh, elderly people. But overall, the museum is not that very comfortable. 
My son is 18, and since he was 8 or 10, he has a problem with this uh, kind of stepping we do in museum. His mm. back hurts. Yeah. Uh, first, I thought that he didn't want to go to a museum, so I said, oh, Dad, let's sit somewhere. But now I know he has a curve there in his back. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, now I do, I mean, I was at the Tate Modern with him three weeks ago, mm-hmm. and he would sit everywhere he could. That was a bit more possible because the Tate Modern, for example, possibly because Chris Dercon was there before, let people sit everywhere, even against walls. Mm-hmm. Now, in French museums, which are much more formal, there are few people who dare sit anywhere. Um, there is some kind of a implicit request in French museum that you don't sit on the floor, mm-hmm. or you just don't sit uh, uh, against a wall. Mm-hmm. That's part of the things that have to change, I believe. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be that difficult to let people sit on floors, mm-hmm. but there is some kind of an implicit requirement that you behave in a rather polite and decent bourgeois way in French museums. But it is not indecent, it is not unpolite to sit on the floor. You can look longer when you can sit, yeah, Mm -hmm. properly. When you visit museums now, or since you became a director of a museum, how did Mm -hmm. that change your perception? Well, I have been much more attentive to such details, as I just told you. I mean, is it possible for people to sit? Mm -hmm. Is it possible for people, especially of a given age like mine, to easily go to the restrooms? Mm -hmm. Uh, How many restrooms are there? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are institutions in France, I mean, even Centre Pompidou. Mm -hmm. There's a huge crowd going through Pompidou all the time, Mm -hmm. and there are so few toilets. Mm-hmm. and they're always dirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait a minute, that is not conceivable. Uh, so I have been much more attuned to such apparently neglectable details. Mm-hmm. But I think the very quality of a visit mm-hmm. uh, and therefore the very capacity you have to keep up with you attention mm-hmm. uh, I would say it has a lot to do with the very physical material conditions mm-hmm. within which you are going to go across a museum. Mm-hmm. Um, I have always been impressed with either Japanese or even German museums in terms of the, the quality of the sounds, mm-hmm. the, 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 the quality of the hosting uh, messages that is offered to you. You, you feel welcome. I, I remember uh, the modern museum in, in Stockholm. Mm. You go to one room to the next, but in between each room, uh, there is a resting area with sofas and low tables and books and possibly, if I remember correctly, restrooms. Mm. So it is not as if you were invited to a marathon like it is often the case let's say Le Louvre or big museums in France. Yeah. Um, so it is as if museums, especially in Scandinavia or in other countries like Korea or Japan, were able to take you by the hand, do understand that the very physical conditions of the visit are 
as important as the cognitive uh, conditions. And one uh, set of conditions, physical, I mean, is are going to have an impact on you uh, capacity for keeping up uh, curious, attentive, imaginative. Otherwise, you're not looking at uh, the painting or the object. You're just looking for the sign of the toilet. Mm. Or where is the next seat? Oh, damn, there are just two seats and they're already uh, used. Mm -hmm. um, so you are fairly quickly distracted by those very physical conditions which were not offered to you and therefore mm -hmm. you visit is a poor visit. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe the visit of a museum is more of a social experience than anything else. So it is not so much the intellectual or cultural quality of the visit that is important, but only the fact that you go through a museum. I, I don't buy that. I very much would like to offer the possibility to uh, visitors to have both an intellectual stimulation, a physical restfulness or whatever you want to call it, and also a social, uh, a stimulating, socially speaking, experience. I mean, a pleasant experience, family-wise or uh, friendly-wise. That is, most of the time now, visits are not made by single visitors slowly pacing through the mm -hmm. museum. Visitors are in the plural. Uh, it's mm -hmm. always a group of visitors, a, mm -hmm. a family, a group of friends, or a, a group of elderly people, or a group of students. Mm -hmm. But I think that museums so far are still not too well um, taking that very groupal quality of the visit in, in, in charge. For example, there are still, at least in France, very many labels explaining what's all about, mm -hmm. which is a tiny little thing under the painting, mm -hmm. or a tiny little thing under mm -hmm. the case where the object is presented, which means that only one single visitor at a time is able to read the label. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. If you come with your family, or if you come in a group, you would like to have the explanation about what you see on the wall in big letters. Mm -hmm. Why not do that? Well, one of the explanations is the belief by traditional curators that explanations are distracting. Yes. So they should be kept very small, very discreet, uh, in order not to shine or to project uh, vibrations or whatever you want to call them mm -hmm. on the very work, which should be your main focus of attention. But for most visitors, if you do some observational study of people's behavior in a museum, they're going to look very quickly at the object and then they're going to look for the explanation because people don't have usually the intellectual or cultural capital uh, to say, oh yeah, that's a piece by so-and-so. Mm -hmm. Oh my, I see it and I'm going to be I'm marrying it for the time I want, but I don't need an explanation. No, most people need some 
uh, escort, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, in order to somehow grasp what's going on. Yeah. So there again, it's a detail, mm -hmm. but I'm very much in favor of bold uh, explanation on the walls or wherever they are, but they should be, it should be possible to read the explanation uh, when you are in a group. In other words, several people should be able to read the explanation uh, at the same time. Yes, it's very interesting because I've been reflecting a lot, as I'm sure you do as well, that there are many ways of learning and experiencing the world and of you know, of course, learning and experiencing a work of art or other object in a museum. Mm -hmm. So I think that you, there are really some people who will, who will actually be so obsessed with the explanation and they should be able to read that. And sometimes, you know, you've seen them, I know, and then they'll skip over. <laughs> but you should have that for them because actually mm -hmm. they have stimulation. Some people are not very visual. You know, that's just mm -hmm. it. And then for those who who who, who experience uh, primarily through their sight, then have so let let's not make it so discreet. I I agree because there's so many different ways, and it's great to have the object as reference for those who who understand the world intellectually. But you should, yeah, mm -hmm. of course, provide them with that. Yeah, I also like those museums where people can touch. Mm -hmm. uh, artifact that is there are reproductions that ah, are plaster yes. reproduction mm -hmm. of the object but for example you have that uh, possibility ah, yes, at the Musée yeah. des Confluentes in mm -hmm. Lyon uh, and you can put your hand in the mouth of some dinosaur or whatever and it's not just for kids I mean there are adults who like to touch the teeth I'm Sophie Mackin, a politics major from Bates College and an associate podcast producer for the creative process. One of the most important takeaways for me from this conversation with Yves Lonkin so far is that in order to include everyone, we have to take the risk of reinventing our rituals and our socially or institutionally accepted norms. His work to make museums more accessible is an inspiring model for all industries that are currently trying to remove barriers from their practices. Wonkin calls upon us to be more imaginative and dare to think beyond the confines of what museums have historically involved. He reminds us to think about the factors that dictate how comfortable people are in an environment and what makes their experiences most enjoyable. His dedication to giving everyone the chance to fully appreciate and access art is particularly relevant during this reinvigorated era of anti-racism and the Black Lives Matter movement. In response to the Black Lives Matter movement, many schools and businesses, for example, have vocalized their commitment to refocusing efforts on inclusion and diversity. Art in all forms, from museums to film and media production, face similar calls for reform. This work is, of course, a long-term process and requires contributions from the collective group. Wonkin's commitment to lifelong learning is a testament to this journey, reminding us that as time goes on, we must have a willingness to recognize the flaws in past structures and historical ways of thinking. 
One can never stop learning or growing, especially when most of our societies are so starkly unequal and leave so much to be improved. We must always question the status quo and use creative thinking in order to make sure that the benefits of art, for example, are equally available for all members of our populations. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Yves Wong Khan, anthropologist, writer, and former museum director. There are all kinds of ways of stimulating other channels than the visual channel. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm. And probably there, because you wanted me to speak a little bit about la nouvelle communication. Yeah. When I happened to be at the University of Pennsylvania in 76, I was coming from Belgium. I had been fascinated on the one hand by Pierre Bourdieu, Bourdieu Bourdieu's work, and also I had just discovered the work of Irving Goffman, and I wanted to attend seminars by Irving Goffman. I also attended that in 76, in the spring of 76, Pierre Bourdieu's seminar in Paris. At the end of the seminar, I told him, I'm going to the University of Pennsylvania, I have a scholarship. He said, oh, you have to go and see Irving Goffman. Because Pierre Bourdieu had Goffman's books translated in his series uh, with the Edition de Minuit, uh, a French publisher. So I started to attend a little bit of the Goffman seminars, but I also started to attend one of those personalities who are not very well known in Europe, fairly well known in the United States, and when you meet him, you could not be but fascinated, Ray Birdwistle. Ray Birdwistle was an anthropologist who had been trained uh, to, uh, been trained in linguistics, and who had made a specialty of observing and leading people to observe small behavior. And actually, I had once an interview with Irving Goffman who said, when I was a student of Ray Birdwistle in 1945, Birdwistle was fascinating for us because he made us observe small gestures which are mostly neglected but which are important in the overall uh, communicational flow. Goffman would not speak that way, but that was the idea. And so for two years, I attended Bird Whistle seminars at the University of Pennsylvania, the Annenberg School for Communication. And Bird Whistle would lead us through questions to observe detailed interactions. For example, he wanted us to make maps of a living room. We had to exchange addresses between the students of the seminar. We had to go to a totally unknown family. We had to argue our case and say, look, would you let me in your apartment? I have to draw the map of your living room. Wait a minute, is that a joke? No, it's very serious. They're very territorial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there it is again. And Burbisol 
in a sense, wanted us to enter, in a sense, a totally unknown tribe. And we had to argue for our legitimacy within that tribe, that is the family. And every week, we had to return to the seminar with new maps and new answers to questions. For example, Bird Whistle would ask us, well, where was the sun coming from? You did not show me on your map where the light or the sun was. Or was it tight? Where are you in the shade? Go back. There was nothing that would not be insignificant, that would be insignificant. In other words, to put it, and it's one of the motto, nothing never happens. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, once you consider communication as a permanent flow, as a stream, uh, a multi-channel stream made of a vocal or verbal stream, uh, a kinesic, um, a gestural stream, an oral stream, um, he, he would define many streams and he, many streams of behavior, and he would say all those streams are sort of checking, confirming, infirming each other. So he would have an opposition with the, between what he called informational communication. It is the verbal way of conveying new information, as we are doing now. But he would contrast that new informational communication with what he called integrational communication, which was made of all those layers, verbal, nonverbal, uh, streams, and he would say that's the way we perform culture. We can never uh, stop communicating. Communicating is performing culture. So it's the, the way most people define communication is very limited. We, he would say to his students, we are going to engage into a full ethnography of what's going on at every moment in any given situation. Well, that's an ideal uh, posture, methodologically speaking. You might then decide to focus on the verbal, or you might decide to focus only on the spatial, uh, on the, or the kinesic, the body motion communication. Mm -hmm. But you know what you are doing, that is, you are specializing, but you start from a very wide frame or a very open frame. So, Bird Whistle, when I heard such an approach to communication, was totally fascinating to me. I had never heard anything like that. I had never read anything like that ever. So, when I, I returned to, to Belgium, I was committed to write a paper or, or a book about him then, make a long story short, the publisher I was able to approach, it's Edition du Seuil, told me, okay, that's fine, but we would like you to draw a bigger map. That is, try to include in your book the, the authors which are all related to Bird Whistle. Uh, try to give us an idea of what's going on in communication in the United States. And I then 
decided to use the expression invisible college, which was an expression used in the history of science, in order to describe networks of scholars who know each other, who quote each other, they might not be appearing together all the times, but you cannot understand one without referring to another. They're all related to each other. They're all in conversation, yeah. yeah. So La Nouvelle Communication is a book presenting about five to ten authors, five main focus and ten the background, showing how Irving Goffman, for example, was a student of Raybird Rousseau, how Raybird Rousseau was a colleague of Gregory Bateson, how Margaret Mead, who used to be the wife of Gregory Bateson, was also some kind of her maternal figure for Ray Birdwistle. She helped him a lot with specialized cameras in order to develop what he called kinesics, body-motion communication. Mm -hmm. I also tried to explain how uh, Albert Shefflin, a psychiatrist in New York, continued the work that Birdwistle had initiated. Uh, and how the work by Albert Shefflin contributed to the development of what is called family therapy, which was very big in the early 80s in, in France. Um, there were people appearing on the stage uh, which were called then a Palo Alto school. It's not known in the United States, but there were American psychiatrists or um, uh, emigre like Paul Václavic, and they produced many books offering a different version of what psychotherapy is all about. Their intellectual roots are in Bateson's work, in Shefflin's work, uh, in Bird Russell's work. So my idea was to offer to a French public the keys for understanding what has been going on in the United States from the 50s to the 70s in terms of communication, in relationship to psychiatry, sociology, anthropology. Mm -hmm. The book went well, mm -hmm. got translated in different languages, and then, and it took me many years to uh, produce it, I decided to offer a second book, which would be more my ethnographic approach, the way Birdwistle had trained us to observe, and that second book is called The Anthropology of Communication. Uh, that is how you go about uh, observing face-to-face -face, uh, communication without cameras. I mean, that was the idea. I wanted a naturalistic approach. That is, for years, for example, I would take my uh, students out, not in the woods, but somewhere downtown, and I would have them observe, for example, people coming down a trolley or a bus or waiting on the platform. How do bodies position themselves vis-à-vis -vis each other in order to say, I'm waiting for the bus. Mm. Uh, I'm not, I always gave that example in order to trigger the students, I, I'm not a prostitute waiting for a customer. 
<laughs> so how, when you are a woman or a man, in that respect, do you position your body in order not to send the wrong signal? To wrap it all up, my latest book on reinventing museums is very much based on some capacity to always uh, retrieve materials ethnographically. That is, even though I told 12 stories which are just imaginary stories, they are fed with details of behavior, uh, details of spatial arrangements, whatever you, you want to call them, which are I think the product of my training by, by Bird Whistle and indirectly by Irving Goffman. Irving Goffman never trained me ethnographically, I have to say. But when I asked him uh, in the fall of 76, which course would you like me to take, he suggested immediately that I take a course in ethology. And I went to the Philadelphia Zoo for a semester observing monkeys. I would never have thought about such a course, but it was it is still very vivid in my mind. That is the professor called John Smith would say you have to select a monkey and there's nothing that looks more like a monkey than another monkey. You know, mm -hmm. they were all in a big cage. And then you are going to try to predict what your monkey is going to do. Is he going to jump on the back of a colleague? Is he going to show his teeth? What is he going to do? Try to predict his behavior. It's going to take a long time before you reach that stage of predicting the monkey's behavior. But that's the goal of the exercise here. What he was trying to tell us was that the behavior of the monkey is patterned into sequences. And one sequence leads to the next. And what we had to do was to reconstruct the set of sequences, what the ethologists call the ethogram. And it would take us days and weeks before we were able first to keep on our eye on our monkey. So we had to find details in his hair, in his way of behaving, which would say, that's the same monkey I'm always observing. Mm -hmm. And then we would go on with the sequencing, the evolving sequencing, or unfolding sequences uh, of the behavior. The last part of the semester was then spent to transfer our newly acquired competence to people, especially how do people behave in crowds? So I do remember spending hours observing the ways people would wait their turn in the cafeteria, how they would hold their... Remember the days, and still today, we have a plate, and we go around with our plate. In order not to have the person in front of us bump into us, we might keep the plate uh, in front of us, but in order not to have, or I remember that I did that, the person behind us bumming to us, we would hold the plate akimbo and we would turn a bit 
So in a sense, we were making some kind of a perimeter around us mm -hmm. safe. That is our. That was my own personal buffer zone. Um, I was not trying to say, you know, don't touch me um, from behind or don't touch me, right? No, I would use my uh, tray, not my plane, my, my tray as a way to keep people at a distance. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of behavior I was trained to observe. And when I did my uh, master's and then my PhD on the behavior of the international in the international house of Philadelphia, mm -hmm. those skills uh, were uh, absolutely uh, useful. I mean, so far as I know, they were not taught in European universities at least at the time. And by chance, I got to be trained to be keenly uh, observant or keenly attentive to such behavior. And that's what I have been trying to do all my teaching life, was to get my student eye more uh, careful about tiny bits and then relate them to a theory, mm -hmm. Berbersol's and, and Garfman's uh, theory of social life. Yes, well, that's where the ideas come from. And I think we started this conversation... Um, we're talking a little bit about the importance of empty spaces or the importance of taking mm -hmm. the time and the importance mm -hmm. of silence um, that goes into the importance of having museums mm -hmm. and um, reflection. Uh, so it's interesting how that goes for a circle. We did not get a chance to speak about some of your forthcoming projects. I believe you're writing about um, walking in urban spaces. Um, yeah, but, it is all kind of related. But that is I related that. because yeah. I told you that I always wanted my student to go into town mm -hmm. and observe public behavior. People waiting for the bus. Mm -hmm. People yeah, walking on the sidewalk, bypassing each other. Signaling to the person ahead of them how they are going to bypass to the right or to the left. It's a complex choreography. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. even more so now because we are all holding... Uh, a smartphone in our hands mm -hmm. so we might be absorbed in that activity and we don't listen anymore mm -hmm. to the footsteps coming to your right or to your left mm -hmm. or we don't even watch the people coming uh, and bang, uh, almost ready to bang into you mm -hmm. so the very many implicit rules about pedestrian behavior are in the process of changing very heavily mm -hmm. uh, to the point that some cities uh, have special corridors on sidewalks for people who are with their uh, smartphones so they can be there and they don't bang into other pedestrians. Mm -hmm. Now, it happens that a friend of mine, well, she was a student of mine, and then she became a friend of mine, Sonia Lavandino, in Switzerland. I used to teach for many years a course at the University of Geneva. And uh, I would there also drag my students into Geneva and say, look, look around. Uh, she was a geographer by training, and at the time she was already a professional, that is, she was being hired by the city of Geneva to make uh, chronomaps, that is, she would um, record how much time you need to come from the train station and go all the way down to the lake of Geneva. 
and the city of Geneva at the time wanted to reinforce uh, walking downtown so they would give maps of the city with the different timing saying you don't need to take a bus or a taxi you just walk it's five minutes or ten minutes but no more than 15 minutes Geneva is a small city so we went along quite well in that respect and we started to uh, produce papers about the art and science of walking, so to speak. But we were in some kind of an applied uh, science. That is, we wanted to contribute to urban studies. And there, there is a debate because some people in my field of, let's say, communication didn't want to go beyond that threshold of pure science. You look at behavior, you describe it, that's it. Personally, I felt that we could jump over. That is, I observe and then I suggest ways of bettering, making the city better. Nobody ever told me, you're doing wrong. But some people told me, you do it, I won't do it. Okay, fine. So, we produce papers about the ways the city could encourage or reinforce urban walking. For example, we wrote papers about how um, art, public art, could be a way to in, to make people curious and would keep on walking longer. Rewards. That sort of things, yeah. you know. Uh, we finally wrote a book in 2012, which is more of a manual for urban decision makers and urban planners, which grab a lot of examples from many cities around the world, telling them it is possible. It is possible for ecological reasons and for health reasons to make people walk for a longer period. Most cities know that it is, well, in, in most cities of the world, people don't walk for more than 18 minutes, one kilometer and a few hundred meters. There are no country in the world which can uh, say our citizen walk for two kilometers for half an hour. So we have to think about ways of encouraging walking within a given perimeter. Now the book I'm writing is some kind of a follow-up on that way of thinking applied to my own city of Liège. The city of Liège was uh, created hundred if not thousand years ago along a river, mm -hmm. so it stretched for a long part, and there are hills on both sides. So the challenge is how do you encourage people not to take their car when you know that walking across the city is going to be very long, more than two kilometers, more than half an hour, and when you know that you have going to, to climb on hills, mm -hmm. which is painful. I mean, for most people, you don't walk up and you, you walk you don't walk up and down 
So I'm now writing that book, which is kind of a challenge. Um, and I'm suggesting that some kind of a blending between walking and using the new trolley, which is coming into town, is probably the best way to keep walking without killing oneself. I mean, mm -hmm. I have to admit that most people won't be able to walk for more than half an hour, but I, mm -hmm. I'm still trying to argue for fewer cars, for a more entertaining, culturally-wise city, so that people are interested in the idea. I mean, walking can become very quickly boring. Yes. But so many... If your mind is engaged, no. But if your mind is yeah. engaged, engage, for example, in Geneva, I love that uh, city for the reason why, for that reason, for example, during some winters, they put uh, cardboard fishes or fishes made of cardboard into trees as if trees were like aquariums. Mm -hmm. And you go from one fishbowl to the next fishbowl. Mm -hmm. So it's much more fun than just watching empty trees. Yes. That, you know, so what I'm trying to say is that there are ways of turning the city into a more visually pleasant city, which are not necessarily that expensive. Look at that example. Look at that example. Mm -hmm. um, there are ways of injecting humor. Mm -hmm. Uh, in, in the city mm -hmm. and there are ways of injecting colors in spite of the fact that for example the city of Geneva looks very gray very dull because of the sky which is often loaded with rain to come or the stone which has been used for building Geneva mm -hmm. is not you know uh, the, 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 the white or yellow bright colors of Italy or Greece mm -hmm. but still uh, Geneva has been turned into a very walkable city. Of course, you might say, well, they have plenty of money. You cannot apply uh, that um, example to other cities. And then, in, and I did it with Sonia, and now I'm doing it on my own. Uh, I said, no way, uh, it can be fairly cheap. It's just a matter of involving uh, city artists. It's just a matter of inviting uh, architecture school design schools if you turn if you are, are willing to turn the downtown area into not a well maybe a playground but an experimental place for the many artistic school uh, of the city you're probably going to have uh, quite a few interesting results i love hearing about all these different um ways of exploring creativity both within the museum and without the museum and I think it's so important um, how you have applied your um, background in anthropology to you know diverse subjects to diverse books I would love to even explore more at length about how how important it is the importance of walking and uh, importance of thinking about urban planning as a city as a work of art I think that it can only uh, it, you know writing these books and encouraging this kind of thinking and creative practice can not only as you say um, help us reduce uh, emissions but also help us you know just uh, increase our sense of well-being you know mm -hmm. and it makes us feel more yeah. connected not mm -hmm. just in our home not just in our small community mm -hmm. but to think about other, it's like our as you say 
uh, Liège is your living room or mm-hmm. Liège is it, it belongs to you mm-hmm. and it can only um, result in yeah. many um, uh, beautiful encounters. In closing, um, we've discussed education and the future um, a little, but maybe as you think about the future um, and uh, I guess the kind of uh, world uh, we're living the next generation, um, what, uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? It, it happens that in recent years I have been more attuned to the very incredibly important uh, urgent importance of ecological questions. Mm. It sounds like very fashionable today to, uh, but I have a son who is 18. Uh, yeah, I had him late, but all right. And then I realized if I project him, uh, let's say 40 or 50 years from now, he's going to suffer very badly from climate change, no matter what. I mean, mm it's probably going to be beyond two extra degrees, possibly three, if not four, within the next 60 years. Uh, And I wonder how uh, I can do something about it. I mean, yeah, sure, I can speak about it. But I sort of feel that my generation has been incredibly selfish in the sense that we had the best of both worlds. That is, I was born after the war, and I never suffered from the restriction right after World War II. I was born late enough. And I'm going to to die within, you know, statistically, the next, let's say, 20 or at best 30 years. And I won't probably suffer from climate change. No, I was just right there uh, at the good spot. But it is as if I just did nothing in order to try to make the world more habitable uh, to my son's generation. As if uh, we're telling him, tough luck, my son. Mm-hmm. Now uh, you are going to deal with flooded cities, uh, permanent storms, etc., mm-hmm. uh, etc. Et I mean, wh- or even you might wonder, maybe we will have the, the explanation about the uh, pandemia of coronavirus and there might be some relationship with climate change we just don't know right now but it might well be connected and there might be other uh, pandemia in the near future especially when the permafrost in the Arctic is going to melt away and just get all those germs <laughs> floating in the air mm-hmm. anyway you know we can be very dramatic very quickly but I have no answer I mean I realize that my only uh answer has been to write papers about encouraging uh, people to walk in cities, to use, and in a sense, to contribute to, a, to safer and healthier uh, cities. But I'm a tiny drop in the water. I haven't made, sure enough, and who has, a major contribution to, to, to that issue. Uh, and it, I'm also very surprised by my own incapacity to uh, reflect on, on those problems earlier. I mean, I didn't do anything. I mean, I just let the world go. You might say, well, wait a minute, what could you have done? 
And it is true that the question I'm addressing to myself with a tiny little answer, well, look, I wrote papers about how to change cities, and some cities seem to have uh, read my papers so that they have been changing things, like in Strasbourg, for example. But basically, I did nothing. And my generation just did nothing, and is still doing nothing. Um, so it's strange. I, I don't feel good about it, especially since I, I just don't know how to handle pragmatically, concretely, the, the situation. Sure, I can vote for an ecological party in Belgium. Uh, I can write petitions or you know sign, but what next? Take a few airplanes, possibly. Mm -hmm. uh, drop off all my plastic there, possibly. Mm -hmm. But it's so superficial, sort of. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I think younger generation, right before mine, let's say in their forties, are trying also to address the issue and f and try to find uh, answers which would make a difference. Mm -hmm. But. So far, I haven't found it, and I feel very bad about it. We have, to, I believe, we have to sign up. I mean, on a personal level, bef uh, in, in, before all the politics, um, you know, takes place. But we have to sign up. We have to make commitments. You know, whether it's on an individual level or whether your country is um, really committing to those promises. If we just let things go the way they are now. I mean, just like all scientists in the world have been mm -hmm. saying for the last few years we are all going to, to crash. Mm -hmm. um, it, it just happened that I read a book called The Unhabitable Earth, which is pretty frightening. And the same time, he doesn't try to frighten people. Uh, the, the author only tries to say, look, I'm going to give you all the consequences of two more degrees, four more degrees, five more degrees. Well, uh, and that's going to happen within the next 60 or 80 years, if not earlier. I mean, we'll have an authoritarian decision, I think. Either the planet makes that authoritarian decision, as you say, can release pandemics of whatever reason, and then the you know population decline and actually brings down the emissions. I mean, that's uh, the other option if we yeah. don't decide to be the authoritarians. Yeah, or yeah. if Australia had, if Sydney had burned, mm -hmm. yeah, maybe. Yes, yeah. it's a. Uh, well, on that happy <laughs> note, <laughs> well, yeah. looking into the future. Maybe I shouldn't have dragged you into that sort of. No, worse. I did. No, it's important for us to look. It's important for us to examine, and so this brings it full circle. It's first uh, important for us to examine not just to see what is happening, but to engage with it and to see what we can do to be a part of that. Um, whether it is in uh, the environment of museums or bringing them out into the cities, what yeah. can we do? That can so, bring us full circle when I was trying to suggest that museums have to be reinvented. Uh, new missions for uh, museums have to be uh, suggested. Mm -hmm. And maybe one of the future most important missions for the museums will have to do with the Anthropocene or the some ecological consciousness. Museums will have to be subtle in their ways of conveying a new ecological awareness to a wider and wider population. It might also be that museums might be 
what is called a common house where things happen. That is where people congener, get together in order to discuss how do we take care of the floods or how do we take care of the fires which are surrounding our cities. I mean, mm-hmm. um, in other words, it's, to me, museums might turn out to be the communal houses which are no longer there, which used to be uh, very open in the 19th century in much smaller towns. Now in larger cities, we might be in need of places where people both scrutinize their past and try to make sense of their present in order to build up a plausible future. You know, so that would mean that museums would end up with very societally important functions if you look at them that way. Um, there would not, they cannot be uh, only conservatories of the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have to be houses where the present is examined and the future is prepared, you know, something like that. I think I think that is a beautiful thought to, to end this uh, fascinating conversation. I, I could talk to you for a long time. Um, yes, how do we preserve the past and look to the future? Uh, I want to thank you, um, Yves Wanken, uh, for all you have done, your, um, uh, your commitment to lifelong learning, your commitment to sharing that with people from different disciplines within the museum environment and without. Um, Thank you so much for adding your voice to the creative (laughs) process. Thank you very much for offering me the platform of creative process. Thank you. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Sophie Mackett. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee and Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, traveling to leading universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to be involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.